Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us together for these next couple hours, Lord, where we're just fellowshipping with your people, Lord. We're in your presence. We're in your word. Lord, whatever we're bringing from this past weekend, whatever burdens, whatever worries, anxieties, whatever it is that we're bringing to the table tonight, Lord, I pray that you would silence them, Lord, and you would speak deep to our hearts, that your spirit would go deep, Lord, that you would open our hearts to what you have for us from this kingdom-divided study. Lord, these are not my words. These are not BSF words. These are your words. And we pray all these things in your son's great name. Amen. Amen. Okay, I mentioned this is an overview lesson, 30,000-foot view of the Kingdom Divided study uh, that we uh, dove into. And we covered a lot of topics uh, in the last nine months or so. Um, one of the things we talked about was sin. I think that was one of the most evident topics, right, and, and things that we learned. Um, you know, we learned about the reality of sin, uh, the sin of Israel and Judah. We're going to talk about that tonight in our lesson. We'll talk about it in our lecture. But we also read about how God moves in the midst of sin and rebellion, how he moves into human history. And even when certain events seem totally confusing to us and totally messed up, God still works by his sovereign hand to bring things together for his glory and for his ultimate redemption. Uh, and that leads to, I think, what is the overarching theme um, from the Kingdom D- Divided study, which is that God pursues sinful people. God pursues sinful people. Um, despite Israel and Judah's outright idolatry and opposition to God's will, uh, the, the Lord used circumstances. He used the nations around them to bring them to a place of humility and a place of repentance. Uh, as we read uh, all through the prophets, there's a sprinkling of this prophecy. In every single prophet that we read, uh, there's a foreshadowing of the coming Messiah who, who will restore not just his chosen covenant people from the Old Testament, but the whole world, all those who put their trust and faith in his name. Um, We know as believers today that the greatest proof for God's pursuit of a sinful people is the cross and his resurrection. You know, I think it's important that we also know this is not just a general pursuit. This is not just a pursuit of a collective, uh, uh, the pursuit of a group. Now, this is important because Christ is coming back for his church and community is important. We're all part of this group, the body of Christ. That's essential. We'll talk about that towards the end. Um, But God is pursuing us individually, personally, on a unique level. Uh, The prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah make it very clear that God knows us personally, that he desires to restore us personally with his son. Uh, It's a big truth that we're going to unpack, and it's a thrilling and exciting thought to know that we are pursued by the Lord of the universe. So a quick outline um, to get us started. There's two divisions. The first division, the reality of humanity's depravity, And the second division, the reality of God's pursuit. I think a good big idea, an overview lesson uh, for tonight and for our whole study uh, is this. Throughout the complexities of our tragic human history, God is pursuing us as he restores and redeems what sin has broken. I'll read that one more time. Throughout the complexities of our tragic human history, God is pursuing us as he restores and redeems what sin has broken. So with that, let's dive into our first division, the reality of humanity's depravity. Did not intend to rhyme that, but it just ended up rhyming by God's sovereignty. So reality, humanity, depravity is like major rhyme in there. There was no intention um, to do that. So diving in here, the the lesson broke it up into two main ways. Um, The first part of our lesson was looking at the sin and wickedness of Israel and Judah that enveloped Israel and Judah. Uh, And then we looked at how God steps into that sin and rebellion uh, and steps into 
his plan for humanity in the midst of that to bring about salvation. So this first part, we're diving in uh, to sin uh, and looking at our depravity. Um, and our lesson took us to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, and I think it's a helpful summary of what we can learn when we look at what happened with Israel and Judah. So I'm just going to take some snippets from that chapter, um, and then we'll, we'll talk about them. So 1 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 6. Uh, This is what the Apostle Paul writes. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. So Paul here is reminding the church in Corinth that all of Israel's history, much of it a sinful and broken history, is actually written to remind us, to warn us. And actually the context of this chapter, Paul is actually going back to the very beginning of ancient Israel history when they were leaving Egypt uh, and how they quickly, when they were in, in the Exodus, when they were fleeing Egypt, how quickly they devolved into pagan worship and grumbling against God and not trusting his leadership. And Paul continues in verses 11 and 12. And Paul writes, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the age has come. So if, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. All right, so Paul writes, right, that the history of Israel, even though he's specifically talking about the Exodus and them leaving Egypt, um, I think we can apply all of the history of Israel, especially the divided kingdom history, as a warning for us. Uh, Why were they warnings? Because much of their history is uh, full of sin and rebellion. So I think it's helpful for us to go back. What were some of the things that we saw that could be warnings for us today? And I think this is just a, I jotted, sounds, jotted down some, I think some big sins, some things that we saw in Israel and Judah, uh, starting with political infighting and backstabbing, right? If you think about the divided kingdoms, this was a chaotic political situation to begin with. Lots of political infighting, lots of backstabbing. There was disobedience from God's direction and leadership. Uh, we saw jealousy and envy. We saw a lot of family clashing and family warfare, right? Jealousy, envy that led to bloodshed and betrayal amongst Israel and Judah's political class. I think the most obvious was blatant idolatry, right? If we think about the absurdity of this, God had offered to be with Israel and Judah, to be with his people and say, I'm going to be with you. You're my people. I'm for you. I'm going to defend you. What I also think is interesting is that when Israel and Judah did cry out to God for help, he did step in and he did rescue them, even when they didn't deserve it. Yet they looked at, Israel and Judah looked at God's offer for fellowship and guidance and instead decided to follow after their own ways And really, they decided to be their own gods. And through that idolatry, we see more wickedness and sin. What I think is like a descent into the bizarre. We saw pagan worship. We saw pagan practices. We even read about the detestable act of sacrificing innocent babies to false gods. That's how insane things got. And on top of that, there was widespread oppression. There was taking advantage of the weak, the vulnerable, the poor, the marginalized. It was total moral chaos. And God takes the sin of Israel and Judah seriously. Some verses that we read earlier in this study from Jeremiah chapter 5, verses 23 through 25. Um, This is what uh, the prophet Jeremiah writes, but these people have stubborn and rebellious hearts. They have turned aside and gone away. 
They do not say to themselves, let us fear the Lord our God who gives autumn and spring rains in season, who assures us of the regular weeks of harvest. Your wrongdoings have kept these away. Your sins have deprived you of good. Another verse from 2 Chronicles chapter 34, starting in verse 24. This is what the Lord says. I'm going to bring disaster on this place and its people. All the curses written in the book that has been read in the presence of the king of Judah because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods and aroused my anger by all, their, by all that their hands have made, my anger will be poured out on this place and it will not be quenched. So God takes this sin seriously. And we know that the root of all the political infighting and the disobedience and the jealousy and the idolatry and the oppression, all of that started at Genesis 3, when we go way back, right? When humanity rejected God's fellowship at the fall of mankind. And when that happens, sin's sin's curse trickles down to every single area of life, and it infects everything. It infects our nations, our governments, our religious institutions, and if we're honest, it infects our own hearts, I think it's, it's most evident, of course, in the history of Israel and Judah in the divided kingdoms. Um, it's also super relevant, I think, for us today. Because I, I, I hate to admit it, but I think the history of Israel and Judah is my history. It's a reflection of us, and it's a reflection of what's even happening today in our culture. Um, and I thought about that a lot um, going through this study. Because I think about, uh, maybe you're like me, but I think about and I look about the, uh, the world and the culture around around us, and I, I feel like it's, we, descend into the bar, the, we descend into the bizarre. Sin gets weirder, right? As I feel like sin gets weirder and Christianity continues to look more and more strange as compared to the surrounding narrative and paradigms, I get this sense of anxiety and I get this sense of loneliness and I wonder where the heck this is all going. Like, what is going on? But we, then we read the history of Israel and Judah, God's chosen people. And we are quickly reminded, I think we didn't study this verse uh, this year, but I think it's a fulfillment of Ecclesiastes chapter one, verse nine, which reads, what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. And there is nothing new under the sun. God's chosen people, his covenant people, his chosen nation quickly descend into sinful practices, pagan worship, open rebellion before God. Humanity has always been this way. Humanity will always be this way. But what then? I think it's pretty clear to us that of, the, the, uh, of humanity's depravity, that's, that's obvious, that's clear truth from Scripture. But what about it? What is God's response to humanity's sin? Um, God could have wiped Israel and Judah off the face of the earth. I mean, Scripture tells us, right, that the wages of sin is death. He absolutely could have done that. Um, but we know he didn't um, because just as God is all just and holy, he is also all merciful and full of grace. His attributes do not contradict one another. We read this from Micah chapter, five, uh, excuse me, Micah chapter 7, verses 18 through 19. Micah writes, who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. I think about Jonah, right? What was Jonah called to do? Jonah was called to preach repentance to the wicked and sinful Ninevites, and God ended up saving them, right? God did judge Nineveh eventually, but he gives them an opportunity to repent. So we also know that sin of the reality of humanity's depravity, but we also know God's heart 
is to redeem and save. And we know this especially, right, as New Testament believers because of God's ultimate gift of salvation, because of Jesus's cross and his resurrection. It's everything that all the prophets have been foreshadowing and prophesying about. And that leads us to our first principle tonight, which is that even in our rebellion and sin, God offers us mercy and forgiveness at the cross. Even in our rebellion and sin, God offers us mercy and forgiveness at the cross. So we know scripture does not mince words, right? God takes the idolatry and wickedness and the sin of Israel and Judah very seriously. He judges them outrightly for it, but God does not wipe them out. He even works in world events. I mean, he he uses the Assyrian and Babylonian exiles. He judges Israel and Judah through that, but he also uses those exiles to preserve a remnant who would trust and repent, which would eventually lead to the coming Messiah, um, and, and if we think about this, I think that's our hope for today, right? Because judgment is coming on sin and wickedness. Judgment is coming on all those who reject the gospel. But not yet. Today is the day of salvation. If we are alive and breathing today, that means we still have an opportunity to come to Jesus. He is patient with us, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance, as 2 Peter chapter 3 reminds us. And that leads us to our second and final division tonight, which is the reality of God's pursuit. The reality of God's pursuit. You know, this theme, this truth, right, that God pursues uh, sinners is all over, like the history of Israel and Judah. We've been reading about it. Um, so some verses, I think, that, that we studied this year that highlight this, first from Joel chapter 2, um, the Lord, uh, speaking through the prophet Joel, even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning, rend your heart and not your garments, return, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Our lesson took us to places like Isaiah chapter 1, parts of Jeremiah, where we see God's pursuit of the lost. Um, but I think we most uh, clearly see that in the prophet Isaiah, specifically in Isaiah 53, of course, that famous chapter that outlines and is pretty much a parallel to Jesus's life, that prophecy about the coming Messiah who's going to restore and redeem that wounded servant. It's often read during the Christmas, scene. We, uh, Christmas season. We read it in our uh, spring semester in this year's study. Isaiah 53, but what's interesting, the very next chapter, Isaiah 54, also touches on this redemptive history, on God's pursuit of the lost. Um, So Isaiah 53 is about the first coming of the Messiah, and then we almost get a little bit of a foreshadow of potentially the second coming of the Messiah in Isaiah 54. Let me read some verses from that. Afflicted city, lashed by storms and not comforted, I will rebuild you with the stones of turquoise, your foundations with lapis lazuli. I will make your battlements of rubies, your gates of sparkling jewels, and all your walls of precious stones. All your children will be taught by the Lord, and great will be their peace. In righteousness you will be established. Tyranny will be far from you. You will have nothing to fear. Terror will be far removed, and it will not come near you. You know, when I first read these verses, I was like, man, this sounds familiar. Like, what is up with these descriptions of like a city and these gates. And it's, it's sounding like Isaiah's describing like the outside boundary right, of, of this incredible city. And if it sounds familiar to you, it might be because you read the book of Revelation because we, le- we read later in Revelation in the second coming of Christ when literally when heaven comes down to earth, when Jesus comes not just to judge sin, but ultimately to restore and redeem all things, uh, 
John talks about this holy city and he describes it in very similar imagery as Isaiah 54. So I thought was interesting was Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 54 give us this whole perspective of God's redemptive history of his first coming to be the wounded servant, to die on the cross and to, be, and to rise again on the third day. And then the second coming when he's gonna come and restore all things. It's at the heart of God's mission It is the entire theme of scripture that despite mankind's willing disobedience and abandonment of God's will, God is on mission to pursue lost sinners through his son, Jesus Christ. And that leads us to our final principle tonight, which is that in our suffering, in our pain, and even despite our sin, God is pursuing us in personal relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. Read that one more time. In our suffering, in our pain, and even despite our sin, God is pursuing us in personal relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. So as we wrap up tonight, um, trying to bring both of these principles together, the reality of our depravity, but also the reality of the salvation that God provides and his pursuit of a sinful people. And as I was jotting some thoughts for tonight's lecture, I just had to, for whatever reason, I just thought about this innate desire that I have that I think is in all of us, to be known, <laughs> this, this desire to be seen, this desire to be understood, that despite whatever we struggle with, whether it's our sin or our burdens, our insecurity, we want to be known. We want to be understood. And I think this is a natural desire. I think God put that desire in all of us. Um, the doctrine that BSF highlighted in your lesson this week is um, the doctrine of humanity, creation, and purpose. Basically, what that means is that God created mankind in his image and likeness. And he gave mankind a purpose to be in fellowship with him and to glorify him on, on our walk on this earth. Um, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it, we were created to worship God and to enjoy him forever. It's that desire to be known in fellowship and to glorify God in all things outside of that fellowship. And of course, we also know, um, because we're good students of the Bible, we know that that fellowship was broken in Genesis chapter, th- chapter three. We're also, I think, if we've been around church and the Bible and Bible studies, we know about God's salvation plan. We know about the cross and about the resurrection. We know about his se- second coming. But I think for me, at least, I think, do I, do I really grasp and do I really comprehend that God is actually pursuing me? That he knows my name. He knows your name. He knows everything about me, including every single sin, and he's pursuing me. Because I think it's easy for me to look at God's redemptive act, like I said at the beginning, as this collective act, right? He's coming for the group, and he is. He's coming for the church. That's important. We are in the body of Christ. Eternity is going to be full of community, right? We're going to be full of people worshiping God and loving him perfectly. But he also comes to us personally, And I can look at this study and I look at, okay, well, God, it makes sense that you're coming for your chosen people because you made a covenant with them in the Old Testament. So it makes sense that that you make these promises to even a sinful, but it's your chosen nation, it's your chosen people. And Lord, I can understand that you're coming for the church because you say that, that's, that's in the New Testament, you make promises. But are you actually coming for me? Are you actually coming for me, for the mess that I am? Those are good questions to ask. They're fundamental questions. Um, And I think for the answer to those questions, all we have to do is look at the person of Christ. So that's what we'll do in the remaining time. Almost done here, I promise. So 
Um, Next year, we are studying the book of John in BSF, so a shameless plug for next year. Um, John is a great book. Uh, It is a great study. I've done it once. It is an amazing study, so we hope you join us. Um, So we're going to look at three interactions that Jesus has in the Gospel of John. You can go to any Gospel, of course, and find fantastic interactions that Jesus has uh, on a one-on-one basis. But because we're studying John next year, I thought I'll do some BSF marketing and we'll plug in the John study for next year. So that's what we're going to do. So we're going to look at three interactions to answer that question, does God pursue me? Right? Does God pursue me with my baggage, with my history, with my sin? All right, let's go to John, John chapter 3. What happens in John chapter 3? Jesus has an encounter with Nicodemus. Who is Nicodemus? Nicodemus was a Pharisee, probably a wealthy religious leader. He was an esteemed member of society, probably revered. He was a morally upright and outstanding person. But Jesus steps into his life, And he says, it's not your religion, it's not your moral uprightness, but it's being born again that will save you. That's one interaction, okay? So one interaction with a Pharisee. The second interaction, John chapter 4, the very next chapter. A very different situation, a very different person with a Samaritan woman at the well. This woman, totally different from Nicodemus. She's not a morally upright, revered, wealthy member of of society, but she is an outcast. Remember from the story, right? She's drawing water at the hottest time of the day. And if she was honest, she was living an empty and a purposeless life. Totally different. And Jesus steps into this totally different situation with this totally different person. And he says, I'm the spring of living water that you've been searching for your entire life. I am the satisfaction that you've been yearning for and that you've been wanting for, that you've been wanting. Different person, different circumstance, different interaction. All right, last one that we'll look at, John chapter 9. The man born blind. Uh, similar in the, with the woman at the well, where this uh, man who was born blind is another forgotten member of society, but a totally different situation. Um, he has this physical ailment, and he is an outcast as well, um, so much so that Jesus' own disciples ask him if it was his sin or his parents' sin that caused his blindness. Different person, different ailment, different problem, different situation. Jesus steps into this, and he dispels all the nonsense and the religious taboo and whatever it was during that day, and he says, it wasn't this man's sin. But it was so that the power of God could be displayed in this man's life. And he mixes some mud with some saliva, puts it on his eyes, He tells him to go to the pool, and the man is healed. Three different situations, three different people, three different interactions. And you know what this tells me? That the answer to the question, does God pursue the individual, does God pursue me, is yes. He knew every single thing about Nicodemus, every single thing about the woman at the well, every single thing about the man born blind, and he steps in and he pursues Jesus has come for the ordinary wanderer. (laughs) He has come for the everyday sinner, which, by the way, is every single person in this room. And that means, just like the woman at the well, just like Nicodemus, just like the man born blind, that your unique history, by the way, I I think I can go out on a limb and say that much of your history, like mine, is a broken history. Because as I mentioned, the sin's curse trickles down to every area of our lives, and it touches everything. I have a broken history, you have a broken history. We all have a broken history at some level, 
right? But Jesus steps into that broken history. Our unfulfilled dreams, our sinful desires, our sinful actions, our unmet longings, our painful moments of suffering that take our breath away. Jesus steps into all of it and he pursues relationship with us through it. He knows every single thing about us, perhaps more than you want him to know, but he does. He knows everything about you. And he certainly knows us more than we know ourselves. thank God, because I feel like I don't know myself on most days. And he knows us and he pursues us. And if you still don't believe me, one final wrap-up verse from Isaiah chapter 40. This is where we'll, we'll wrap up here. Starting in verse 27. This is a beautiful, beautiful chapter uh, of God's comfort for his people. But this is what um, the Lord is speaking through the prophet Isaiah. Starting in verse 27. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired and weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary. He increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary. Young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. He is the infinite and everlasting God. His understanding, no one can comprehend. No one can fathom it. And you don't think he knows you? (laughs) He pursues us. So with the phraseology of the prophet Isaiah, as we wrap up, have we not heard? Have we not read through this study? Do we get it? Do we get the point of kingdom divided? God is pursuing you. God is pursuing me. And that pursuit has come through the living Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, a lot of different people in this room, a lot of different walks of life, a lot of different struggles, a lot of different moments of suffering, a lot of different sins that we're wrestling with and dealing with. Some of us are new believers, some of us seasoned believers. Maybe some of us are exploring Christianity and your claims to be the Son of God. Lord, whatever it is tonight, God, for all of us, Lord, I pray that you would make clear that you have pursued us in your Son. Lord, for us who know you and are following you and walking with you, Lord, remind us of what you have accomplished at your cross and in your resurrection, that salvation and that fellowship with you that can never be taken away. And Lord, may we never lose the wonder that you have pursued us and that you pursue us and that you know us, Lord. And Lord, for those listening to this, watching this, um, who don't know if, they're, if they've trusted in you, Lord, maybe they don't know where they're going to end up when they die, um, God, I pray that you would come to them and remind them and make so clearly and plainly that you pursue them in the midst of of their sin, in the midst of whatever history and burdens that they're bringing to the table, Lord. You use everything. You use everything. There is no wasted moment. You use it all to pursue us, Lord. And I pray that they would understand the call from you that today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow is not promised to us, but today is the day of salvation. And that when they come to you in repentance and faith, they will find life. 
and they will get to know the God who has pursued them. Lord, I ask you to bless our discussions in this final uh, wrap-up night and um, that you would bless our time next week as we share at Share Night what God has done through us in this study. And we pray all these things in your son's precious name. Amen.